<clears throat> well, uh, growing up, um, I was very excited to, to get my license. I was one of the youngest in my grade, and so I was one of the last people to get my license. And I remember when I was in the process of going through driving school and uh, learning how to drive and riding with my parents and during the permit stage, one of the things that they want you to understand is how to drive in the fog. And the big things that they say is never use your high beams. Never use your brights. They say drive slow, but then also they say rather than trying to focus on what's directly in front of you, whether it be a car, whether it be the fog, they say one helpful tip is to look for the painted line on the right side of the road. They actually recommend don't look at the middle one because what you, what you uh, look at, you tend to drift toward, and so if you drift toward the middle, that could be dangerous. But they say look to, to the right because if you go slow and you start to go a little bit off the road, that's better than going in the middle of the road. They say in the fog, when you can't see, when you don't know exactly what's ahead, look for that painted line on the, on the right side of the road and just follow that. Well, in today's text, we see Habakkuk essentially looking for that painted line. He doesn't understand why God is working the way that he's working. But he repeats back to God some of the things that he knows about him. He looks to that line and he tries to understand what it is that God is doing. Now, we just started this book of Habakkuk. So to give you some context, this was written shortly before the fall of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. They fell to the Babylonians, or as Habakkuk calls them, the Chaldeans. Now, during that time, the Babylonians, Babylon was a rising power. It was soon going to be the, the, the foremost power in all the world, but it was on its way up at this point. Assyria, who was the world power, was on its way down. So there's a changing of power at this time. And Habakkuk describes some of the rising of Babylon as well as some of the internal issues that are going on in the kingdom of Judah. Now, Habakkuk is the eighth of 12 minor prophets. And don't be fooled again by that word minor. It doesn't mean that they're any less important. It just means that the books are smaller. They're shorter. Therefore, major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, that comprise five books named after them. But then Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations. Now, the book of Habakkuk, as we already said, is one of three books that addresses some of the internal issues faced by the kingdom of Judah. And all three of those books are right next to each other. So we have Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Nahum anticipates Israel or Assyria's decline. Uh, Zephaniah, which is right after Habakkuk, talks about the, um, Judah's internal issues. And then Habakkuk, which is appropriately placed right between these two books, talks about not only Assyria's decline and Babylon's rising, but also the internal issues that the kingdom of Judah is facing. And the theme, the theme of the book of Habakkuk is that the righteous live by faith. The righteous live by faith. And last week, we saw that the righteous live by faith even when evil surrounds them. And this week, in the text that we're looking at, we're going to see that the righteous live by faith even when they don't understand how God is working. The righteous live by faith even when they don't understand how God is working. So if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk, we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 12. And if you're using one of the blue provided Bibles, that's going to be on page 785. Page 785. Look for the big number 1. And the little number 12, that's going to be where we start. 
And if you're flipping there, you need some help finding it. Let's look for Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. If you get to Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, then you've gone too far. So it's in the Old Testament. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Now let's read. The text that we have today is going to be Habakkuk 1.12 through 2.20. And normally, I just read all the text on the front end and then um, refer to it as we go. But I'm only going to read part of it right now, and we'll pick up the rest of it when we get, when we get there. But I'm going to read verses uh, from chapter 1.12 through chapter 2 verse 5 right now. Then we'll pick up the rest later on in the sermon. This is God's word. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for a proof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows them up or swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury. And his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Let's pray. God, we pray that as we look at this passage, that you would help us understand more clearly who you are, so that when we don't understand the way that you're working, we would still live by faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this text, you can see it broken down in your bulletin in three points. Uh, we see that in, from chapter 1, verse 12, through the first verse in chapter 2, we see justified confusion. Justified confusion. And then in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, we see a justified trust. And then when we get to that third point, we'll see justified judgment. So justified confusion, justified trust, and justified judgment. Now, this is... Habakkuk's second dialogue with God. And he's confused, all right? So when he's, after hearing that God is going to raise up the Chaldeans, raise up the Babylonians to address the sin that is in the wicked kingdom of Judah. Okay, this kingdom of Judah, remember there's the northern kingdom, which is Israel. There's the southern kingdom, which is Judah. There's a lot of wickedness going on in Judah. Habakkuk says, why is this going on? God, will you eventually please just address the wickedness that's going on here? And God says, yeah, I will. 
And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. When Habakkuk does his first complaint, he's essentially, if we could summarize it, he's he's just saying, why aren't you doing anything? And God responds and says, I am. But you're not going to like what it is that I'm doing. And now we get to Habakkuk's second complaint. And he doesn't say, why aren't you doing anything? He now says, why are you doing it like that? I don't understand, God. He's trying to, trying to look to that painted line on the side there. He says, God, this is, this is who you are. Why are you, why are you addressing it this way? I don't, I don't get it. He says, you're eternal. If you look in verse 12, are you not from everlasting? He says, you're the holy one. Yet, he says, you've ordained them, the Babylonians, as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. He says, you're holy, you're eternal, but for some reason you've established them to address the issues of wickedness. And I don't understand. Help me understand. Now, even though Habakkuk doesn't like it, Habakkuk has accepted that Babylon is going to be the one, the instrument that God uses to address the wickedness in the southern kingdom of Judah. He's going to use Babylon to judge and reprove his own people. Now, he calls God his rock. Now, that term rock means stability or protection. And so even though God is going to use Babylon, God being reliable and being stable, Habakkuk understands, okay, you are in fact going to do this. You said you're going to do it. You're a rock. I can rely on that. You are, in fact, going to do it. But also, rock means protection. And so he says that not only are you going to do this, but we shall not die. He says that in verse 12, essentially saying that you, O rock, are protection. I understand you are going to use the Babylonians to reprove us, to to bring judgment, but we won't be completely eradicated. We shall not die. We will be reproved, but we shall not entirely die. But even still... He says, I don't understand. If you look at verse 13, we see him looking to that painted line on the side of the road. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So he knows who God is, but he understands how God is working the way that he is based off of who he is. Does that make sense? He understands who God is, but he doesn't get how the person and character of God can work in this way. And when he says that in verse 13, he's quoting Psalm 5, which we alluded to last week. But Psalm 5, he's referring to verses 4 and 5, where, he says, where the psalmist says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. And so look, Judah is wicked. Habakkuk acknowledged that. There's wickedness all around him. Justice goes forth perverted. He says, why aren't you doing anything, God? And then when God says that he is going to do something about it, he's going to raise up Babylon to address it, Judah says, wait a second, yeah, the southern kingdom of Judah, we're wicked. But Babylon's even more wicked. Like, if there's a wickedness scale here, they're winning. And if, if we've tipped the, the buckets where now we get to be judged, why haven't you judged them? Throughout school, uh, some classes that I took were, were harder than others, particularly of the math variety, statistics, calculus. I was good at math in like elementary school and middle school, 
But then when it got a little bit more difficult, I realized math is just not my thing. Now, some of those classes, other people struggled with as well. So when you take a test, you get it back, realize it didn't do so hot. The hope was that the professor would be grading on a curve. That would be great. So if the highest grade in the class was a 75, then 75 is the standard for A. And so if I got a 55, then rather than getting an F, maybe I got a C or I got a B, just depending on whatever the curve was. Now, as Habakkuk is complaining about the wickedness in the southern kingdom of Judah, and then God says that he's going to raise up Babylon, Habakkuk's like, wait a second, they're worse than us. How is it that you can use them? Habakkuk is saying, yeah, we're, we're wicked, but they're even worse. He's kind of hoping that God grades on a curve. So that God says, okay, yeah, you know what? You're wicked, but you're not as bad as these other places, so I'll just, I'll just deal with your stuff a little bit more easily than what I would. But here's the thing, friends. God does not judge on a curve. And so he can use those who are even more wicked than us to bring judgment. So Habakkuk, in making this argument, he goes on to describe how bad the Babylonians are. He says they capture people like fish. They've built their empire on bloodshed. They enjoy security and luxury. Why? Because they've exploited their neighbors and taken advantage of them. And then they also, he says, they worship false gods. They sacrifice to their net and to their dragnet, the things that bring them that luxury. And so Habakkuk poses a question to God. He says, will you allow this to go on forever? Are you going to continue to allow a nation more wicked than us to go on? You're apparently judging us. Are you going to allow this more wicked nation to continue to go on and grow in luxury, grow in wealth, grow their empire? How long will you allow that to take place? And then he says he'll wait for God's answer. And he goes on. You can just kind of hear the attitude in Habakkuk's voice. Say he'll be ready to answer God when God does respond to him. Look at verse 16. Or excuse me, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post. He says, I'm, I'm going I'm to wait here. I'm going to watch out and, and wait for God to respond. I'm going to take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He says, look, I'm waiting for God to give me an answer, and then I'm going to be ready for his answer when he does answer my complaint. Habakkuk's not thrilled. He knows who God is, but he doesn't quite understand why God would use a more wicked nation than Judah to address the wickedness that's going on in Judah. So he's understandably confused. His confusion is justified. What he knew of God, as he quoted Psalm 5 there, didn't quite match what he was experiencing from God. As a Christian, we talked about this last week, but we just want to reiterate it. You can be honest with God in your prayers. You can be embarrassingly honest with God in your prayers. Dishonest prayers, friends, understand this. Dishonest prayers do not honor God. Dishonest prayers dishonor God. He knows the truth. You don't need to act differently in your prayer life than you would if you were talking to a close friend. Talk to God honestly. But there's a way to be honest with God while still honoring him. How? Do what Habakkuk did. Repeat God's words back to him. And then say, God, help me understand. Repeat God's words back to him. And then say, God, help me 
understand. This is what Habakkuk does. Notice he doesn't accuse God of being unjust. He doesn't start making all kinds of lavish accusations against God. But he says, this is who you are. This is what you're doing. And I'm going to stand at my watch post and I'm going to wait for your answer. Because I don't understand. Proverbs 18.2 says that a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Brothers and sisters, Habakkuk was no fool. He knew who God was, and he wanted help in understanding what it was that God was doing. And so, kids in the room, kids, when you don't understand what your parents are doing, why they say no to something, or why they say you have to do a certain thing, rather than just being upset, it would be helpful if you responded to them the way Habakkuk responded to his heavenly father. And just ask them, Mom, Dad, help me understand. Three simple words. Help me understand. And parents, when they do ask that, now you get to be ready. And it'd be helpful for you to tie your instruction to what God's word says. It's a great opportunity to have a Bible-centered conversation with your children to see that as a discipleship opportunity. We do this, son, this daughter, because this is who God says he is and this is what God wants from his people. It's a good opportunity to do that. But kids, rather than just getting upset, ask your parents, help me understand. So after seeing Habakkuk's justified confusion, now we come to that second point where we see justified trust. And so notice in this, in this passage, these four verses, verses 2 through 5 of chapter 2, three things for Habakkuk to trust. Three things. The first is to trust in God's message. Look at verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. And so after Habakkuk questions God, God makes it clear that he means what he says. He says, look, I I'm, I'm told you this, it's going to happen, in fact, write it down. Make it plain, make it clear for people to understand. In fact, make it so plain that the person running by would be able to read it and understand it and then be able to quickly take it on to others who need to hear and understand what's going on. So make it plain. And look, friends, one of the ways that we display trust in God's message is by helping others plainly understand it. One of the ways that we display trust in God's message is by helping others plainly understand it. So the first thing that we see that Habakkuk is to trust is God's message. The second thing in verse 3 is to trust God's timing. God says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. God's saying, What I say is the truth. It's going to happen. You don't need to worry about me getting a little bit of it wrong. It's going to happen. What I say is it's not a lie. He says, If it seems slow, this judgment that you're asking for seems slow, just wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. It's right on time. So judgment awaits its appointed time. It is coming, but it won't come before it's meant to. God is perfect in his timing. He is trustworthy. And so when he says something, you can trust it. When he says something, you can trust it. John 17, 17, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he says about the disciples, he says, sanctify them, sanctify the disciples in the truth. 
your word is truth. Everything that comes from the mouth of God that we have here in his word is truth, and we can trust it. The third thing is trust God's knowledge. So we see trust God's message, trust God's timing, and now the third thing is trust God's knowledge. And we see this in verses 4 and 5. So God is aware of Babylon's wickedness. He knows exactly who they are. It's not that he chose Babylon to execute this justice, and then after choosing them, and Habakkuk brings it to light that they're more wicked, he thinks, oh, shoot, I chose the wrong nation to bring judgment. No, he knows exactly who they are. That they're proud, they're puffed up, that they're arrogant, they think too highly of themselves. That they're greedy, and they never have enough. Rather than being content, Babylon constantly went after more and more. They wanted to grow their kingdom, grow their empire. Friends, we need to to heed that warning. Especially in in a culture that says, yes, go and get yours. Go and get as much as you can. Get the biggest house, the nicest car, get whatever you can to show that you're successful. God says they were greedy. They never had enough. Let us be people who are content with what the Lord has graciously given us. Then he also says in verse 5 at the end there that they destroy people groups. He's willing to destroy others for his own personal gain. And then in verse 4, we, we see the theme of the entire book. That the righteous shall live by his faith. And we've already hit on this, but the righteous shall live by his faith even when wickedness surrounds them. Even when all around them they look, they see wickedness, they see injustice, they see, they see sin. Even then, the righteous live by faith. But also, in this passage, the righteous live by faith even when they don't understand. Even when they don't see why God is doing what he's doing. When they can't seem to comprehend why it is that he would choose to work that way. So what does it look like? To live by faith. It's a nice thing to say the righteous shall live by faith, but to actually define it is helpful. We'll just look at those three points within this one. Is that the righteous live by faith by trusting God's message, by trusting God's timing, and by trusting God's knowledge. That he, in fact, knows more than what we do. And at Romans 8.28, he uses all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if you're here and you're not a believer, thank you for, for being here. But that great promise that God works all things for the good of those who love them is specifically for the good of those who love him. It is not for all people. And so if you are not a follower of Christ today, that promise is not for you. So I would encourage you to to turn from your sin, to call on the name of Christ, so that you can know that even in your greatest suffering, God is going to use that for your good. But if you are not in Christ, that promise is not yours to take comfort in. So why is trust in God justified? Because God knows all things, and everything that he says comes to pass. So we can, in fact, trust him. God's judgment for Judah, when he's telling Habakkuk that I am going to bring judgment, that took place. Said he's going to use the Babylonians, that took place in 586 B.C. You can go to secular textbooks and you can find find that out. God kept his word. And then his judgment for all humanity, friends is also set for an appointed time. Don't assume your works are sufficient. Don't look to the law for salvation. What you've done. I've mostly kept the law. I think God's going to grade on a curve. I've kept like seven out of the ten. 
Like I, I, I'm doing pretty good. Most of my neighbors are probably only at a 4 or 5 out of 10. Don't look to the law for salvation. God does not grade on a curve. You need to have kept the law perfectly for your entire life. And I can just take the wind out of your sails right now. That's not anybody in this room. That's the posture of one whose soul is puffed up. If you look in verse 4. And Paul quotes, here's the cool thing, is that Paul, when he's writing to the Galatians, the Galatians were abandoning the gospel that were saved uh, by grace through faith alone. And they were going to some law worked into it. That, uh, yeah, we need to have faith, but we also need to have some of these works baked in. If you just read the book of Galatians, you can see Paul's uh, critique of that understanding. But he quotes verse 4 of Habakkuk 2. So this, this main theme verse, Habakkuk 2, 4, he quotes to the Galatians when he's trying to make the argument for them that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He says in Galatians 3, verse 11, Now it is evident that no one, no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Paul looks back at Habakkuk and what God told him and tries to make the argument to the Galatians that, hey, you need to be reminded of Habakkuk. When God told him that the righteous will live by faith, you Galatians need to be reminded that the righteous live by faith, not by their works. God doesn't grade on a curve. So if you're not a Christian here, look at that verse closely in in Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. Don't assume you're good enough to dwell with God for all eternity. That's the posture of one whose soul is puffed up. We see it in, earlier in the text. In faith, ask Christ to remove your sin. Ask Christ to clothe you in his righteousness. Trust him, place your faith in him to remove that sin and to give you his righteousness. And then, friends, you will live. The righteous shall live by faith, not by their works. And if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus here, do you trust God even when you don't understand his ways? Do you trust God even when you don't understand his ways? Are you making God's message known and making God's message plain to to others? One of the ways that we show our trust in God's message is by telling others about it, making it known to them who God is. That he is holy and pure. And that evil, that sin, cannot dwell with him. Making it plain who we are. That we are sinful and rebellious. Making it plain who Jesus Christ is. That he is fully man and fully God. And he represents both perfectly. And as a man, he lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. And he died the death that we were supposed to die. So that anyone who calls on him can have that sin removed so that they then can dwell with God for all eternity. And then, are you making it plain that there is a necessary response? That those who do receive him will enjoy him in heaven and in glory for all eternity. But those who reject him will experience his just judgment in hell for all eternity. We make these things plain. We make these things known to those around us, who God is, who we are, who Jesus Christ is, and that there is a necessary response to these things. It's not enough just to know it. We need to respond to it. And so what we see in the third point now is not just God's promised judgment, 
but his justified judgment. So let's look at verses 6 through 20. I will read those now. This is God still responding to Habakkuk. He says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth Keep silence before him. God is responding to Habakkuk. And he responds to his first complaint by saying, yes, I'm going to address the wickedness that is found in the southern kingdom of Judah. I'm going to do it through Babylon. I'm raising them up. Habakkuk then responds and says, why are you using them? That doesn't seem fair. They're more wicked than what we are. Why don't you just judge them? God then responds with these five woe statements and says, I will judge them. Give it time. Woe to them. Their judgment, their time is coming. So let's walk through these. So God makes this known to back it through a series of these five woe statements. And each woe, if we look closely at it, reflects the character of Babylon. Each of those woes reflect the character of Babylon. So if we look at the first one, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, one who takes what is not his. We see God bringing judgment upon that by saying in verse 8 that he'll lose what he's gained. If you build yourself up by taking what's not yours, you're going to lose what you gain. The second woe there, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house and sets his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. So this person is building up his home by evil means to be safe. Babylon was going from nation to nation and destroying people, doing evil things to build themselves up a stronger and safer empire. God says, you won't be safe from harm. In fact, verse 10, you'll forfeit your life. Woe three, 
In verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. This person builds a town or city by evil means. And his judgment will be that his labor, his labor that he's building this, this town, he's building this city, he's putting all kinds of effort and labor, it will be merely for fire, God says. It'll be for destruction. Rather than this person's kingdom spreading across the earth, here's what God says. He says that the knowledge, of, or that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So you who try to build this kingdom through evil ways, he said, you're going to build it for destruction. It's going to be destroyed. But you know what it won't be? The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's going to cover the entire world. That will not be stopped. And, and we should rejoice in this. How are we seeking to share the knowledge of God with others. Remember, knowledge of who God is. God, God's the greatest thing in all creation. To share knowledge of him with others is to share with them the greatest thing, the greatest enjoyment that they could possibly enjoy. And so the, the knowledge of God covering all of creation, it's the knowledge of God's love, of his mercy, of his justice. We want justice so bad, especially in our society today. If you want justice, you need to look to the one who is just, the one who has given a just law, the one who will judge justly. Charles Spurgeon talks about this kingdom. He says that though little at the beginning, the gospel kingdom is to be far greater than any of us have dreamed. The knowledge of the glory of God is not just head knowledge. His kingdom is going to cover the entire earth. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be no injustices there. There will be no pain there. There will be no disease there. There will be no death, no tears. And so let's proclaim this knowledge so that others may hear and believe. And in hearing and believing, that they may enjoy this kingdom with us for all eternity. The fourth woe, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So this, this person that is receiving this woe, they, they make their neighbors drunk so that their neighbors will act shamefully. They take advantage of them. And the Babylonians were doing that. They were taking advantage of peoples. They were doing that sexually. They were also doing that militarily by, by taking advantage of them and then taking over their cities and building their own kingdom. Look, God does not look kindly on the weak being exploited for shameful gain. He is a just God, and he will address that. And then the fifth woe, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. The Babylonians were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping their net and their dragnet, the very things that would bring them the wealth and luxury that they had. And here's the danger for us as we look at these five woes. The danger for us, the thing that we're going to be tempted to say, is that, boy, those Babylonians, they sounded bad. It's no wonder that God judged them. Glad we're not them. As Jonathan pointed out in the prayer of confession, the publican and the Pharisee, the tax collector and the Pharisee, to look at someone else and say, boy, I'm glad I'm not them, probably indicates that you are, in fact, just as worthy of judgment. And friends, if we look at God's holiness and God's purity and look at our rebellion, we actually realize that we do, we are, in fact, just as deserving as judge, of judgment as the Babylonians were. Just as deserving. God does not grade on a curve. If we fall short, we fall short. Okay. Rob? Hold on. You say we're just as deserving? That seems strong. 
just as deserving. I've, I've never murdered anybody. I don't take advantage of my neighbors. I'll encourage you to just read Matthew 5. I'll just read a few verses here. Matthew 5, 21 through 22, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So if you've had an angry thought towards someone else, you're considered a murderer. I don't sexually violate my neighbors though, Rob. Matthew 5, 28. Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you're guilty of murder. You're guilty of adultery. Okay, well, I don't worship false gods. Well, you might not have a false idol painted in gold and and carved out of wood in your house, but has anything ever taken priority over God? Anything at any point in your life ever taken priority over God? Hobbies, career, social media, health, spouse, children, finances, friends, vacation. If any of those things have ever taken priority over God, then that's called idolatry. So we are just as guilty and we are just as deserving of judgment as these wicked Babylonians. Don't fall into the temptation of thinking, okay, yeah, they were really bad. Let's not be them so that we don't incur the same judgment. Friends, we've fallen short. And we are just as deserving of judgment. And here's the thing. God's judgment is always justified. Each of the five woes reflected Babylon. And he kept his word to judge them. He kept his word to judge the kingdom of Judah. That took place in 586 B.C. with Babylon. And then he says to Habakkuk, I am going to judge Babylon. Here's these five woes. All these things reflect Babylon. I am going to judge them. And he does in 539 B.C. He does that through the Persians. So when God says that he's going to bring judgment, we can trust that he is going to bring judgment. His timing may not be ours. But even when we don't understand his timing, we live by faith, trusting that he will keep his word. He said he would address Judah's sin. He said he would address Babylon's sin. And he did. After Judah was overthrown by Babylon in around 586 B.C., it was nearly 50 years before Babylon was then overthrown by the Persians. Nearly 50 years. I have a hard time waiting 20 minutes for something in the oven. I would just rather go to the microwave and put it in for two minutes, let alone waiting 50 years for God's word to come true. But when God says he will judge humanity, do you believe him? Do you consider yourself, yes, sure, Rob, I believe he is going to judge humanity. Okay, so now personal question. Do you consider yourself to be more righteous than some other people? And are you basing your safety because you are more righteous than some others that you may have in your mind? Again, just want to reiterate, God does not grade on a curve. Like the kingdom of Judah, you may be more righteous than some other people. However, you do still fall short of the glory of God. And in Acts 17.31, we read that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. There is judgment coming. God has said he's fixed the day for it. Do we believe that he is, in fact, going to bring perfect justice? Because if we do, then we can not try to take things into our own hands. We can still try to, to impact and try to make differences, but we don't have to take it into our own hands and execute justice on our own. We can trust that God is going to bring perfect justice. We can trust the establishments that he has placed in in and over us to bring some of that justice. And if it doesn't work there, then we can trust that God will, in fact, make it right when he does come back on that day. 
to judge in righteousness. God's forbearance and his patience. Judah had to wait 50 years for Babylon to be overthrown again. God's forbearance and patience in bringing his final judgment is so that many would repent. Romans 2.4, we quoted this last week, we'll quote it again. That Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so, non-Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, do not confuse God's patience with God's approval. He is not approving of sin because he hasn't brought justice yet. That justice is coming, but his his forbearance and his patience is meant to lead you to repentance, that you would have time to repent. That's God's mercy and his kindness to those who don't deserve his mercy and kindness. Repent and believe the gospel so that you may also receive his undeserved grace. And if you are a Christian, do you believe God's word, even when he seems slow to fulfill it? Are you trusting it? Stephen Sharnick wrote this. He said, our patience is a submission to God's sovereignty. Our patience is a submission to God's sovereignty. It's a way for us to say, God, I trust you. I will be patient because you have said this. And I can look in in the fog, I can look to the right side of the road and see who you are. I can see what you have said. And I can trust you. I can continue to move forward because I, I know that you will not lead me off the road. And in his great love for us, God has provided a way for you and for me to be spared of this judgment that he has promised. If you would, turn in your bulletin. Go to, go to page 7. And you'll see about halfway down, walking through the catechism. Now we get this from the New City Catechism. There are 52 questions in the New City Catechism. And so just for each, question, for each week, we do whatever week that is. So this is the 19th week of the year, so we have question 19. So this wasn't us trying to be clever. This is just God's, God's providence we read here, is there any way, in question 19, is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? The answer, yes. To satisfy his justice, God himself, out of mere mercy, reconciles us to himself and delivers us from sin and from the punishment for sin by a redeemer. And we talked about that redeemer in our Article, our fifth article the, on the back of your bulletin where we say we believe in justification. You see that it is not given, justification, it is not given because of any works of righteousness we have done, but only through faith in the Redeemer's blood. Friends, this judgment is coming. And we're all guilty. However, God has provided a Redeemer. He has sent his Son to take away the sin of all those who would call on him so that we can be made sinless. Even though we still wrestle with sin, in God's eyes we are sinless because we're clothed with Christ's righteousness. And just as sin and evil cannot dwell with God, we can't enter into his dwelling place, we can't be there for eternity if we have sin. That can be removed so that then we can enter into his dwelling place and enjoy the heavenly kingdom for all eternity. It only comes through the Redeemer, the one who judges and saves. James 4.12, there's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. The Lord Jesus Christ will save and destroy. He offers that, that salvation, being saved, freely. If we would just call on him, if we would humble ourselves, if our souls would not be puffed up within us, if we would call on him and bow the knee to him, then he will save you. So even when they don't understand, the righteous live by faith. 
when you don't understand why God hasn't given you children, when you don't understand why he hasn't provided a spouse, why he hasn't granted healing, why he hasn't relieved your suffering, and why he continues to allow the effects of sin to seemingly expand. The righteous live by faith. Friends, live by faith, knowing that God has promised to judge and he has promised to destroy sin and all of its effects. If you are trusting him as Savior, then you're no longer considered an enemy of God. Instead of being an enemy of God, you're now considered a child of God, and he works everything for the good of his children, of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Your sins removed because Christ has paid for it on the cross. He's taken God's wrath that you deserved. He's bore your penalty. There is no penalty for you now to bear if you are in Christ. And if you are in him, because your sin's been taken away, you're now free to enjoy the sinless, heavenly kingdom for all eternity. And the suffering that you experience here and now, the suffering that you experience in this life, is less than one grain of sand on the beach compared to the eternal suffering reserved for God's enemies in hell. The suffering that you experience now is the greatest amount of suffering that you will ever experience. And it's only one grain of sand on the beach compared to the eternal riches that you'll experience in heaven. And for those who aren't in Christ, it's only one grain of sand on the beach compared to the eternal suffering they will receive in hell. If you're not trusting Christ as Savior, turn from your sin, repent, call on him. He's ready and willing to forgive you. He's promised to judge in perfect justice. And he's promised justification through Christ. Romans 3.26, it was to show his righteousness so that he might be just and justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just. He will punish sin. That judgment is coming. But he's also justifier. He will justify anyone who places their faith in Jesus. In closing, look at that song that we sang, He Will Hold Me Fast. Verse 3 that we sang together. For my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. God is faithful. He will judge sin. And if you call on him, he will hold you fast. And he will return again. And you will be ushered into his new creation, the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the good news that we can trust you even when we don't understand the ways in which you are working. We praise you that you have revealed to us who you are in your word. Help us to look at your word and to seek to understand you. And when we don't, help us to be like Habakkuk and ask, help me understand. Lord, give us strong faith. Help us to live by faith. We pray this in Christ's strong name. Amen.